0: Welcome to InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS and today's show is a new show. We're going to take a look at the biggest news stories in insurance and insurtech from the last few weeks. I am, as always, joined by some lovely guests. So first up, we have returning friend of the show, James York, who is the founder of Worry and Peace. How are you today, James?
1: I'm very well indeed. Thank you for having me back.
0: You enjoying our new studio?
1: I am indeed. It- it's padded. That is one word for it.
0: Um, Next up, we have another returning guest, Sean Meadows, who is our chairman here at 11FS. How are you today, Sean?
2: Um, Absolutely great. Having a fun fun time doing planning. Oh,
0: spreadsheets. Yep. Ah, bad luck. Um, And finally, we have Sabine van der Linden, who is making her new show debut. Sabine is the CEO of Startup Bootcamp and partner at Rainmaking Insurance. How are you today, Sabine? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm glad we finally got you on the show. It's taken us a while. I know. For once, I'm not traveling. For once, I'm not on a plane.
3: So, (laughs) yes, you got me.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. All right. Well, let's get started. So the first story today is that an insurance brokerage plans to offer unlimited holidays and trust contracts to its staff. So it's billing itself as the most progressive in the insurance industry by offering employment contracts based on trust and perks like unlimited holidays. Uh, So Stephen McGill set up the company a year ago. The firm McGill & Partners has already hired 150 people from 26 companies, according to the FT. Um, Not only does it offer unlimited holidays, but staff are required to take a minimum of 20 days holiday. Um, And on top that, the firm is offering a year's fully paid maternity leave and six months fully paid paternity leave. Uh, so Steve McGill is the former Eon Group president, um, and he's hoping that the strategy is enough to attract new talent uh, in the city's hyper-competitive recruitment market. So we talked about the difficulties of attracting talent to um, insuretech and in fact to insurance um, a few weeks ago on, on the show. Do, do you think this is going to solve it? Do you think this is going to get uh, the right people
3: in to, to, you know, bolster the future of the insurance industry? It's, it's an interesting um, case because um, you know, working with tech, you actually see a lot of flexible terms and benefits being offered. And um, even when you look at the tech giants, they actually have implemented a lot of things to show that they trust their employees. And implementing that in insurance, I guess, is not too bad. Whether that is going to retain people, I think you need culture, you need mm-hmm. other things. It's just a good start for me.
2: I I'd, I'd totally agree. Um, most people join businesses, I think, because of the culture and the values. So maybe this is part of their culture and the values, what they're trying to create. Part of me just thinks it's a really good gimmick day one, but somewhere down the line, he's going to have employment issues and without contracts and without some guidelines and principles to go by, it's going to really struggle.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder what a, a contract based on trust actually, it, you know, it, it is when you get in there, when you when you're looking at it and when you have any questions about your employment, terms of employment, you know, we all know small businesses go through that period where processes um, change and change and change and get change again and having those contracts in place helps you ensure that everybody knows kind of what they're entitled to, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I don't know. James, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I've, I've been reading a, a book about Silicon Valley culture recently, as, as every entrepreneur must do weekly. Um, these tricks are used, ironically, behaviorally, by the startups to almost get people to work harder so um, I'm, I'm approaching it slightly from a, a point of cynicism um, because if, obviously if you can take unlimited leave and, and you know flex as much as you want and all these points of trust it's almost a panopticon isn't it of, of you know looking at your colleagues so that is that a good cultural thing to every, for everyone to be almost looking at each other and policing the system with with guilt and sort of the negative vibes I'm Other under- than that, the maternity and the paternity thing are obviously great.
0: I mean, yeah, it sounds like I understand what you're saying. It sounds like to me that that's the, the Silicon Valley 2.0, because the fact that they are required to take a minimum of 20 days holiday shows that they've looked at those companies that have unlimited holiday policies when nobody takes any holiday, because mm. they don't want to be seen as that person um, who lets the team down. Whether that's, you know, accurate or not, that is sometimes the perception. Um, and there, there is still a lot of presenteeism. There's still a lot of places out there that will, you know, think you, you're you doing the best work you can as long as you're there from six till six and, you know, 365 days a year. Um, but it sounds like they've sort of taken that into account by enforcing the minimum of 20 days holiday. And then the maternity and paternity leave is great. I've actually just had a thought, is it a 20 days holiday due to the l- law in the UK? Yeah. yeah. So you have to take a minimum. because It's an anchor of, yeah. point yeah. Yeah. as well.
3: And you have to take them within within the year. But mm. I think people taking those 20 days is super important with all the mental health issue we're mm-hmm. actually seeing happening and incurring within, within organisations. And so... Taking healthy holidays, very yeah. much recommended.
0: I actually enforce my team to take holiday. If they haven't bought it booked in by the end of the year, I'm like, well, I'm going to give you the days off if you don't put them yourself. <laughs> I had a
1: friend who was in the Navy and they're allowed to roll their holiday on and he ended up having half a year off. Because he just kept pushing it on and took a long sabbatical. I mean, that's a bit of an anchor point, isn't it? Twenty days. It'll be interesting to see the stats, what the the, the standard deviation is from twenty days mm. uh, away. So, I think it's really interesting. Certainly, as you said, it gets them on the radar and it's doing something that's a bit outside the box. And the fact that they've managed to hire so many staff, there must be something good in the in the culture and fit when they interview, as well as these you know key points in the contract.
2: Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me that take goes to Sabine's point, which is. This is year one. They've attracted 150 people. The true test of whether this is going to work is in year three, year four, year five, when hopefully there might be 300 people. It's just like, do they need policies? Do they need process? I'd love it if they didn't. I'd love Mm -hmm. it if they could prove that we don't need those things. But there's always a maverick. There's always mavericks within teams. There's always people who just abuse the system. And that's when people go, oh, no, we need a policy for that. We need a process for that. And that's when I think some of these things could go wrong. Love it to succeed, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, and from my perspective, I'm just loving seeing some sort of innovation in recruitment and HR, actually, because it's one of those areas where I think has been rather left behind, um, you know, when we talk about the new forms of company out there and, you know, startup culture. All right. So on to our next story today. Um, and that is that one single cyber attack in the Asia-Pacific region could cost $110 billion. Um, so the stat came from Lloyd's of London. Um so the detail is that a single cyber attack on major ports in the Asia-Pacific region could cost that much, which is roughly equivalent to half of all losses from natural catastrophes globally in 2018. So this comes from a report released by Lords of London and produced by the University of Cambridge Centre for Risk Studies. And the losses could occur in an extreme scenario in which a computer virus affects just 15 ports, actually, across Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea and China. Uh, what's more, the report showed rather unsurprisingly, perhaps, that the global economy is unprepared for such an attack with 92% of total economic costs uninsured. So that leaves, for those of you who aren't keeping up with the maths, an insurance gap of $101 billion. Yeah, I made it that. Yeah. (laughs) Good. I'm glad somebody's checking. Uh, Wow. Yeah. When
1: I worked in Lloyds of London, I think the realistic disaster scenario, the biggest one was a, a ship crashing into the Houston oil port and sending off chain reactions which is obviously quite sexy to to look at the report but yeah this is this is huge isn't it i mean stephen catlin's been warning for a long time about the the aggregate risk of cyber and when you couple that with the the shift of assets to the digital space i think i don't know the exact number if i said 65 percent of company ip is is digitized that might be in the ballpark but it's a huge figure isn't it and it's only going to get bigger i think that that States need to start stepping in now and creating something that – and Lloyd's can play a real role in this, um, like we have with Paul Re uh, and other areas that, that preempts this, because it's going to happen, isn't it? Exactly. 15 ports and yep. 100 billion
3: risk. Wow. And actually, because we are at the moment doing a lot of work around transport and maritime – I did go and ask my team, you know, what is happening? What are you doing in Singapore? And they said to me, actually, Sabine, it's so new. I mean, Singapore and the port is actually new. And they are just starting thinking about cyber Mm. um, because they are putting all this great technology in those amazing ships and they won't have people riding them anymore. And so while they build the infrastructure and the great technology, they have not yet thought about the risk of cyber, and they need to start addressing that now. It almost feels like we need
0: to have a greater concentration on addressing cyber before we think about technology. I think it happens everywhere, right? People get overexcited about the potential of whatever new technology that is, whether that's you know some form of artificial intelligence or whether it's Internet of Things, you know, connected devices, and there are all these you know brilliant um, use cases for them, usually to do with you know cost saving or increasing efficiency. And then it just takes one person to give. What happens if you pull the plug out and, and all that goes down?
2: I think you've summed it up, which is. You know, if you're a logistics manager, you worry about logistics. Yeah. Having lived in Singapore and worked there for, for three years and seen the ports in Singapore and the, the ports in Hong Kong, they worry about logistics. They don't worry about cyber. And I really don't know what they can do. You know, the governments can do a lot of stuff, but there are people who are spending their days trying to find a way to hack into these things yeah. and cause disruption. Not you always wonder, don't you, do?
1: if this kind of waves a bit of a flag... For for someone looking for, a you know, a really great cyber attack, you know, we've just basically <laughs> put it up there in lights. Well, yeah, this will cause maximum damage. I'm, but I, I guess it's done for that reason, isn't it? Because it's, it's still extreme is the key word there. This is, I don't know what the actual probability of it happening is, but...
0: I'm always of the opinion, and this is again probably very cynical, that um, cyber criminals are ten steps ahead of anybody who's trying to stop them. Like, whatever you think you've got, they've got it tenfold because they've already been thinking, you know, how is this person going to try and stop me? Um, It's interesting as well, the, the report mentions the fact that the interconnectivity... So it's actually kind of as we as the whole global economy becomes more globalized and more, and more linked to each other, this isn't to do with technology, it's just the fact that that knock-on effect gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And actually there's no way to, to pull that back, even with, you know, today's like modern, the modern political state in, well, sorry, state of modern politics, but wherever you are in the world, there's a lot of retrenchment. That's not going to stop this happening, guys. That's not the solution. Um, and I don't really know how we how we get cyber insurance to the front of people's minds? Because this may may work. You know, this is a shock tactic. Are there any carrots we could offer?
3: Well, I wonder whether it's cyber insurance. Um, we're doing just some work on the prize 2.0 mm-hmm. recently. And we actually identified that there are on 19 billion, which has been invested in cyber security startups. There are on 8,000 of them. Mm-hmm. But the problem is not looked at cyber insurance. It's about endpoints, it's about website. It's about all this digital economy and where attack can occur. And I think we need to start back to uh, around the customer journey. And in this case, it's probably the ship journey and start looking at where the problems may occur. And then looking maybe at new technology, new um, startups and uh, scale-ups, um, able to solve some of those problems because there are stuff happening right now. It, not, it might not just be insurance, mm-hmm.
1: The ironic thing as well is that the weakest link in the cyber chain is the human. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was following a uh, quite an interesting financial services professional on Twitter, and he he almost gave all his bank details away to someone that had phoned him up. And they got all the way through the conversation. He was absolutely convinced they'd sent him a link, which was masked. And even as a professional, he was kind of trained with this stuff. He was so close to, to giving his details away. So I think it's an awareness thing in organizations as well, isn't it? That There's a human training element of... Of cyber that that really needs to vein through the culture, I think that most companies are quite aware of it now. It seems to be relatively in demand as a product um The argument is is there a an overlap with personal cyber too with this stuff because i i it, we don't know where the i mean in this situation we don't know where the attack starts from. Is it a botnet that, you know, it'd be good to read more detail on the, the report and where the losses come from.
0: It reminds me of that attack that happened a few years ago on aeroplanes, which was caused by a pilot with a malware infected smartphone plugging into the dashboard to charge it. I believe that's what and he was is doing. He individually liable for <laughs> yeah. that to his employer? <laughs> and, I mean, maybe. I don't know. And he took out, I don't know if it was just that one plane's, uh, you know, network, uh, just that one plane's technology, but, you know, it's just that kind of, again, That's you don't even think about it, that single point of contact. I just need to charge this. and you go yeah that's something to have nightmares about isn't it um Next story today is that insurance companies have been warned by regulators. Uh, So there is a specific, there are specifics to this. I mean, I know that insurance companies get warned by regulators on a regular basis. Um, This in particular is relating to the Bank of England firing a shot across the bowels of insurers, uh, warning chief executives across the sector to improve their culture in the wake of revelations about sexual harassment and bullying. So it warned that under personal accountability rules, such episodes could trigger a fine and even a ban on senior managers if there were failings on that watch, their watch, sorry. Um, That in. Includes in instances of wider misconduct beyond the breaking of pure financial regulations. Uh, no companies in particular were identified, <coughs> but I think if you look at the BBC, you'd probably find who who might might be the target of this particular. Well, the the first target of this particular piece of uh, advice from the fca but i don't think they'll be the last it's interesting because this is kind of the the flip side to that first story we're talking about right so the first story was all about you know what can we do to improve culture modern culture culture that fits with current expectations and at the other end of the spectrum you've got the bank of england still having to tell uh you know people in in higher higher positions within insurers that (laughs) this is still your problem just because it's not you know money laundering you still have to do something about this do you think that'll have any effect, or do you think it's?
1: So I'm reading the the book, little plug for it called Super Pumped, which is the story about Uber, um, written by the journalist that broke some of the, the key stories. And when they get rid of Travis Kalanick, they hold a press conference, and Arianna Huffington um, has an all hands, you know, intro of, of the subjects matter of a report similar to this actually which investigated all the problems with Uber and um, they go through it and they say yep we're adopting all of the recommendations they get rid of Travis Glanick and they change some things and then one of the 70 year old men on the board says yep it's great that we're changing these things but the problem is we've got another woman on the board and that means there'll be too much talking. So straight away, when they adopted the cultural change, someone who was in a really senior position of power completely evaporated all the, the findings in one hit in front of the whole of the company, and he then had to resign two weeks later. So my concern is that the the, the C-suite really need to... It's their, it's their role, it's their responsibility, isn't it? And just having a report like this about the industry and then adding someone to the board, if you really don't buy into it and believe it and add more tactical cultural change and education in and put your money where your mouth is... It you know, like that Uber story, it's bubbling away, isn't it? And, and then people just don't have trust in, in the C-suite really delivering.
3: I was just thinking, why do you think that happened? Because I started my career at Lloyd's, 25 year old. I did regulation. So when regulation was not at the FCA, was at Lloyd's and I was meeting a lot of CXOs because I was telling them they had to pay great fines. Um, what you find is sometimes, and I'm not giving excuses, it's, unintentional. And I have my biases. And I think there are so many unconscious biases we need to start addressing. And a lot of time when I'm asked that question is, have you had an, you know, unconscious bias training? Because let's just start getting those things out there in front of the mind, because this is going to happen again.
1: It'll it'll also, ironically, if if unconscious bias happens with men towards men or other forms of discrimination and and selectivism, it's going to happen if You know, the whole of Lloyds of London was run by a female executive committee. There will be unconscious bias too. So it's a never-ending battle, isn't it, to make sure people are aware of it. It, I I think one of the concerns is, take that example from the Uber all-hands meeting. That individual in question probably isn't a sexist person and and said something that in his day would have been considered a joker off the cuff and not taken in it with as much offence. But it's up to that person to almost self-select what they're saying and, and consider how it comes through in the current culture but it also behooves other people to maybe be a bit more forgiving and not instantly make someone guilty of something because i think that breeds fear and if it breeds fear then people maybe don't speak about what they don't understand which doesn't give them an opportunity to learn and that that's i guess from a, a male perspective that's my concern with it is that that culture is is open and there's a dialogue as opposed to well
0: i think i think guilt. the point about the the bank of england was making here as well is that it's personal accountability so i think it's the point um, that I do think that people should be held responsible for what they say. I don't think it should be like one strike and you're out. Um, but I do think, you know, if that's going on and somebody is saying something like that over and over and over again, then they need to be taken to task for it. Um, the other thing that I think the problem with the, the Lloyd story in particular was that uh, um, 500 people had sort of reported seeing it, um, but only 45% of respondents said they were comfortable raising their concerns. So those people were effectively turning a blind eye, not necessarily because they wanted to turn a blind eye, but because that. that's... That's all they felt they could do. And that in and of itself, I think, is the bigger problem. So if you're the manager, say, of somebody who is you know, continuously perpetrating this kind of behavior, then, it, it, you know, there's a responsibility on you to take them to task for it. But also, at the same time, there's a responsibility of other people to tell the manager of it. So I think it's, again, that I think the culture actually has to maybe slightly lower down, rather than the culture of kind of openness right at the top, you have to make people say, oh, it's okay to, to say this. And also to say it's something will happen if you say it, because... You get just very, very used to people uh, making complaints to HR about whatever it is, whether it's sexual harassment or uh, racism or disability um, discrimination, people who are disabled. It's HR gangland is something we can do about it. And there is um, kind of a, an expectation of that. Sorry, Sean.
2: Now I'm assuming the Bank of England have got to the point to that, though, that they're going, you know, we've had enough subtle conversations, mm-hmm. we've had enough private conversations, we now need to tell people to do something different about it. And that means organisations have to change their behaviours, really start training some of their, all of their different levels of their organization, whether it's on unconscious bias, whether it's on diversity, to make something happen. You know, they're obviously believing that change is not happening fast enough and they're still seeing too many examples where it's being being allowed allowed to happen.
0: And I think particularly with one of the, the points here, it's about bullying as well. So slightly slightly different issue, if you like. But again, you know, people may not be realize they're doing it, but again, senior managers are... Can see that happening. Like that's something that is going to be in front of them. It's just uh, my point being that it's a, a wide range of issues here. It's a huge range of issues. It's not like the bank of England after one thing. They've gone. You've got to just, uh, you know, think about the behaviour across the board. And if you don't, we will hold you responsible for it. It's the same as in pubs. When you're the landlord, if somebody in your pub serves somebody underage, you, the landlord, is
3: responsible. But that sounds like a major program because we we talked about unconscious bias. It means gender balanced behaviour diversity and inclusion, just not Mm. having, you know, different people, but the framework to do the the, the right thing. So it sounds like it's a, a big cultural shift being asked. And a cultural shift being asked of the whole industry.
0: So maybe they could all learn a thing or two from the first company we spoke about. Um, Right. I'm sure if it's successful, it will be a case study, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Right. Our next story today um, has the glorious title, HSBC Offers Pick and Mix. Uh, So HSBC will redefine, in inverted commas, insurance with a pick and mix subscription service. Um, For people who Don't live in the UK. (laughs) Pick and mix is where you go to a stand and put lots of different types of sweeties into a basket and just pay for one basket of sweeties, which is why it's making everybody around this table smile. Um, HSBC's take on this uh, is to offer something called select and cover. Um, And so HSBC UK customers can choose a minimum of three types of cover for £19.50 a month. So the insurance models uh, available will cover mobile phone coverage, gadget coverage, home emergency, motor breakdown, um, life insurance and travel insurance. So uh, Mark saying HSBC Insurance UK's chief executive, said that this will redefine the way our customers do insurance. A subscription model reflects our aspiration to provide customers with innovative ways of buying and using our products. Uh, The covers can be charged yearly, cancelled at any time, and it covers the account holder, spouse, or partner, and children. Thoughts? Other than a brilliant name, or a brilliant title, rather.
3: Well, things that touch um, changes around distribution um, in some ways, and potentially repositioning uh, insurance products or the design of products within the insurance value chain, potentially to another place. Having HSBC going into insurance is not new. Um, they are trying to uh, modularize and unbundle some of the things that people want, and probably they are trying to target specific segments of the population, maybe more of the millennials. Um, but what that also says is, so what is insurance? What is personal insurance in the future? Are insurers going to just manufacturing pay claims, potentially, um, if this type of distribution model become more prevalent?
2: Yeah, I didn't. I read this and thought, good on you. And I thought, "But is it going to work? Uh, mainly because it, it is a subscription. Basically, you are paying you premium monthly, uh, which you can do on lots of insurance. It's a cover for things that you can already get, breakdown, gadgets, stuff you can get. And it's like, It sounds like a really good idea, but is it going to change people's behaviors? They have access to masses of customers. It'd be really interesting to see how easy or well they do on on the penetration. I just cannot suddenly see people switching their breakdown, switching their life insurance, switching their travel insurance to this model. Um, Love to see it succeed, just don't think it will.
0: I wonder if it's targeting people who already have insurance or if it's targeting that market of people which is vast that don't have insurance in a lot of these areas. I mean, obviously motor insurance, you know, it doesn't apply there, but actually oh, it's just motor breakdown, isn't it? So there are a lot of people who don't have motor breakdown insurance, travel insurance, woefully underinsured life insurance, again, particularly against the younger demographic, very low take up, uh, you know, mobile phone coverage and gadget. Well, you know, you can you can take or leave it. I wonder if it's trying to improve coverage for those who don't have it by making it as easy as possible. And as we said, that subscription model does tend to appeal to a certain demographic. Um, But I guess it all comes down to, at the end of the day, are you actually covered for the things you actually need to be covered for under £19.50 a month?
1: I think it's, it's interesting that they're the smaller, more niche products that people wouldn't usually have always on a standalone basis. So the fact that they're bundling those together is quite interesting. It feels like mortar rather than bricks, if that makes sense. I'd also say if, if you're going to be using phrases like pick and mix, you really want to go deeper into the policy a little bit because people don't ever seem to flex by peril or, mm. you know, the terms within it or, or trust customers to have any understanding of that. You know, you might say it was a, a phone insurance, you might increase your excess for a theft in your house because you think you live in a safe area. So hopefully on this platform, they can do a bit more innovation, but certainly pick and mix didn't bode well for Woolworths.
0: (laughs) Oh, I miss Woolworths pick and mix. (laughs) Oh, me too. Um,
1: Apple Jacks, mainly. Um, And unbundled insurance, is it on demand? Those two combined? Is there any really, you know, examples of shining stars in that area? I think people have tested it, you know, to death, um, literally. So jury's out on that model, I think. But certainly, as as you stated, they have massive distribution. So... Yeah. Even a, I think a successful failure for them would probably still be bigger than most people's numbers
0: and I think there's probably um, evidence here as well of this move towards like protection as a service, so uh, you know make make my don't roll your eyes at me james I didn't come up with the term. The idea that like I just want to be protected like i I, I just want to be covered um i don't know I, I don't think that is the right attitude to have, but I do think that insurers are are trying to meet. That need, which which, because a lot of the time when you think about insurance, you're thinking about something bad happening, and so if you have to think about something bad happening in every different aspect of your life, every time you go and buy a different insurance, you can see why some people sort of think, oh, I don't want to think about that. You know? Yeah,
1: there's there's two conversations going on at the moment. So, um, yeah, ultimately, I'm seeing a lot of plays where they're embedding insurance into websites, but it's also embedded into the service. People are also talking about multiple touch points. Uh, so you've got one side of the fence where they're like, we should be invisible, um, you know, so you turn up and your insurance is already embedded in what you're doing. And on the other end of the scale, you've got people saying we should be talking to our customers more. We're not talking to them enough. We don't have a relationship. Can I be maybe bold in saying I think both of them are on the right track and maybe there's a third way and they're both wrong? So that's kind of what me- this makes me roll my eyes a little bit because it feels like it's, it's that kind of more touch points when really it's a veiled way of selling three products in one.
0: I think that the embedded or the as a, uh, or the invisible insurance argument works is more compelling to me because it's around either a particular like touch point or a point in your life. So, I really love the idea of what you, you know that, that all the big American car manufacturers are doing. And in fact, Drove doing in the UK, where you pay a monthly subscription for your car, and it is insured, MOT is covered you know uh, breakdown covers provided they even wash it for you in some of them and that to me as somebody who just hasn't got time for the admin of owning a car I'm like yes I know it's a little bit more but I probably would pay that but that's a particular one thing that's the vehicle it's not my life insurance and my washing machine and my phone
1: well why why don't we just go the whole hog I mean if that's the pathway why don't I just come work for you and all you do each month is send me my disposable income And my food, my car, all my insurance, my household bills, everything's just paid for. So my point there is going to the extreme of that, the more you start to bundle things together in one payment, the more people are triggered by how much it's costing them uh, versus their their income. And big insurers have got a major problem selling more than one policy because the more they bill people, the more people are like, oh, you know, especially when it comes to insurance where it's so intangible and you don't know if you're ever going to drink that cup of coffee. I just think we're going to trigger people in a way that perhaps... I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things that, that's going to rumble on with insurance. We have an insecurity complex with our what, the product we sell because we make money out of it. People never know if they're going to use it and they don't really want to buy it. And that problem I don't think is fixed by adding lots of frills onto it and calling things pick and mix. But it's a neat way of differentiating. Yeah, and
2: Sarah, I think some of it comes back to your point. It's like, what's covered? You know, I had the pleasure of being the marketing director of one of the biggest breakdown companies in the UK. And £20 a month is like the most basic breakdown cover that you can get. Nobody bought it. Everybody wants the roadside or the at home. So I'm looking at this thinking, that's why my slightly cynical going, what am I going to be covered for for Mm. £20 a month if that's one of three things I can have?
1: This is is another behavioural trigger. So uh, I run an intermediary and we sell a type of insurance. I won't go into the details. I'm not here to plug my stuff. But I had a fascinating interaction with a customer where they phoned up and said, look, I've heard of the carrier and I've checked and they're really big. And the price was, you know, competitive compared to your rival's. You didn't ask me any questions, and I was like, "Let me just get this in my head." So it's a good insurer; the price is good, but we didn't take up loads of your time, and you've got problems with that. He was like, "Yeah, why didn't you ask any more questions?" Like, people are more expensive, so it's weird how that trust issue, when you flip it round, is is counter to what you'd think. You go for affordable and quick and easy, and actually, that triggers people to think, as you've said, this isn't any good.
0: We talked about the same thing with travel insurance. You know, um, when we did the travel insurance show a while back, like you, you know. If it's cheap, people are suspicious. You know, it's too good to be the too good to be true. And maybe this is a very British mentality. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's true. Well, people. It's the
1: wine list thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a behavioural economist who mentors me, and he tells me about the wine list phenomenon where someone gives you a wine list, and let's say it was cheapest to most expensive, top to bottom. I don't know why I'm waving my hands around. No one can see, but most people obviously don't know about wine, so they'll scroll their finger down and they'll go from the cheapest one and find a spot that works in their budget and then they'll look at the name and and go from there. But it's totally licked finger in the wind as opposed to anything scientific.
0: That's actually not a bad way to buy wine, though, if you (laughs) don't know of any of them and your, your budget is like, that's your budget. The one that I always know about wine is that you should never choose the second cheapest. Exactly. You should always go for the cheapest or, you know, one in the middle that you know you want. Anyway moving on. (laughs) Um, The next story uh, comes from the BBC, and it's the news that drone pilots will now have to register with regulators in the UK. So UK drone drone pilots have 25 days to register with regulators. The mandatory requirement comes from the Civil Aviation Authority and aims to, um, it says, urge owners of drones, but presumably it's required to, uh, or model aircraft weighing more than 250 grams to register for cover. Owners of unregistered drones could then face the threat of a fine. Um, The CAA is also starting a service it hopes will reunite owners with their lost drones. So research shows that a quarter of UK drone drone owners have had a drone go missing due to flight malfunctions such as battery power or technical issues. Um, sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. The service will issue drone owners with an identification code, which a person who finds the drone can then use that code to find the owner, a bit like bicycles that they do at the moment in London. Um, I personally think this is a pretty good thing. Like, we don't want to stop people flying drones and having fun. I mean, I, I can't see the attraction, but a lot of people in this office like them. But, you know, in order to prevent any kind of accidents or any of the disruption perhaps that we saw um, at the UK's major airports quite recently, I think registering them seems totally fair. Um, There's an interesting thing, which is that in order to register your drone, you do have to take an online quiz, which quizzes you on how to fly the drone safely. So before you can register it, you have to pass a a quiz. Um, And it says that even children will have to take it. So because a lot of people apparently let their children fly drones, um, anybody who wants to fly that drone has to have taken this quiz. How they're going to check that if you've got one drone and one registration in a family of 10, I don't know. Uh,
3: But generally, I like the idea. I do too. I do too. I mean... You raise a problem, Uh, we saw it with the airports, so people need to take accountability, I think, for their behaviours. I think the other aspect around lost drone, I was really surprised about that as well, that drones can be lost. Um, By providing the information, you can get your your drone back, but probably there is education as well, that there is a little switch which is called drone can come back and then the drone comes back.
1: Uh, My concern here is uh, the amount of people that won't, bother doing it and Mm. policing the system. Um, But maybe they can get critical mass. I mean, DVLA, drone, drone vehicle. I mean, maybe the DVLA can be involved in this. I think that the insurance industry can play a really key role. Absolutely. Because when you insure it, we can check and obviously register it for you. And at point of sale. So, yeah, no, no bad issues with it really the number of lost drones though that's going to have to change isn't it if we're going to have delivery drones everywhere otherwise they'll be (laughs) falling out of the sky
0: yeah we'll need a different kind of insurance drone protection insurance for just walking down the street yeah there's
1: going to be a liability for that so
0: i think for the drone insurance providers it's a really good thing as you said you know we've had a few of them on the show you know flock we've had on um several times and and i think that for them it actually bolsters their business case
2: it mainstreams it doesn't it yeah i also don't understand why they just don't make you register when you buy it yeah. yeah, Why? Why have it as a voluntary thing afterwards? You're buying it, register it in that moment. It just seems a logical thing to do.
0: It's um, the other the other option for a, a story like this we had this week was some, was one of the many stories on e-scooters. Um, I decided to to leave that one out, given that Nigel wasn't here to go on one of his tangents about it. Um, but the point being, I think that we're starting to see agencies catch up with these new technologies now, and that will ultimately make things sort of generally better for society but also help the insurers start to work out what they can and can't offer where they should and shouldn't offer it and and help them ensure that their you know their business models are up to scratch as well um, yeah it doesn't it doesn't require you to get insurance as well I'm looking at Hannah the producer but uh, I don't think it requires you to get insurance I think it just requires you to register it and then you can go on from there alright uh, so here's a fun one um Insurtechs get into a fight over color choices. So the headline for this is Lemonade gets a nasty gram from Deutsche Telekom over its use of magenta. Lemonade says it will fight. So Deutsche Telekom has yet again picked a fight with another company based on its color choices. But company's German lawyers have sent a letter to Lemonade. um, So it's the AI-based insurance startup. It's currently headquartered in New York, but they are operating in Germany now. Um, the letter demands that the company stopped using magenta, a color that appears across Lemonade's Lego marketing material globally. Uh, Deutsche Telekom also filed for and received an injunction on Lemonade operating in Germany. A block Lemonade has temporarily worked around by dropping magenta for the moment. It's currently using red in Germany. Um, this is not the first time that Deutsche Telekom has attacked another company for using the color. Apparently, it's also gone after carriers like AT&T and Talia, Um N gadget, Apple device management specialised data jar, invoice services provider, Compello, and now uh, and a now defunct smartwatch maker, <laughs> um, don't you tell telecom, more litigious than I ever could have possibly thought.
1: More litigious than a certain insurer with an umbrella. Well, yes. <laughs>
0: I how can you claim, my first thought was, this probably shows my age, how can you claim a trademark on magenta? Isn't that like the colour in inkjet printers? Don't, like you have to buy
3: magenta, cyan
1: and yellow. Is it pink? Is, that, is magenta just a yes. posh name for pink? Yeah, It's, it's a shade of pink. It's a shade. It's a it's shade.
3: And there is quite a few. I mean, if you pay attention, there's probably four or five different magenta pinks, actually. Yes, and there's actually, if you go to this
0: article, it shows you all the different colours that Deutsche Telegram has uh, got trademarks trademark on.
1: Oh, they do have it. So is this under EU trademark law they've got a right to it?
3: Okay, well, that's, I mean, the rules are the rules, I guess. But colour trademark, probably you nearly know, impossible to do. I, I don't even think we can do colour trademark in the UK.
2: I can't see how you do it. I'm, I sat here, we reading this this morning, thinking, so AXA have got a red line. Can you really trademark that? Aviva, yellow. LV, hard. You know, you can go down the list and you think, really, how on earth are you going to trademark or stop people using Could. an umbrella or a colour? You know, it just, just seems nonsense to me. And are people really associating, I've forgotten even who it was, Deutsche Telekom with Magenta. Is it really that big a deal?
1: When I shut my eyes, I see Magenta for Deutsche Telekom.
2: Do you? Um, No, I'm more thinking in the, in the digital pure play world, Twitter and
1: Facebook, you think of a certain shade of blue for each, don't you? So, I, I can see where they're going with this, if, if okay, those if are the I mean, rules. Right. But it does seem a little bit, given that they're not in competitive sectors, if Lemonade were intending to launch rival products, then yeah.
3: But they, they actually also registered they're insurance. Usually. So, that is ah, the interesting thing, okay. is that they also registered insurance as a trade now under that color, which means that they may actually have decided to go into insurance too. So for those who, so it might make more sense if we call Deutsche Telekom T-Mobile,
0: which is the brand in the UK, which okay. might bring the pink to some more people's minds. Again, I would actually think of the T and the dots. This is this is like a great psychology game, isn't it? What do you yeah. think of when you say this brand? Like a round in a pub quiz. Um, yeah, no, to Sabine's point, uh, Deutsche Telekom, it looks like it's going to be launching insurance for its uh its gadget insurance.
1: Okay, well that's yeah, that makes more sense. And T-Mobile, they're in the states, aren't they? I'm surprised they haven't made a similar move, unless maybe they're owned by a different structure, I don't know. But yeah, i you know.
0: Well, it does say Lemonade's CEO said that although DT's letter specifies that the startup stopped using Magenta globally, he thinks that the carrier waited until they entered Germany to take legal action because it put startup squarely in German jurisdiction where DT might get treated more favor- favorably. Indeed, the cases where it's lost all been outside its but own market. But Lemonade was
3: created when, in 2015, and they have been using that color since. So if they were in the US, they should actually have done something then, um, rather than just waiting for them to come to, to Germany. So that's what I found a little bit peculiar. Yeah. I mean, it just gets into specific, you know, gets silly. T-Mobile's
0: specific form of magenta that it's trademarked for its brand is RAL4010, a color that is not exactly the same as Lemonade, Schreiber said. Uh, anyway, um, I would just like to close out by saying I think branding is important for insurtechs. And I do think that it is important that in a, cl- a crowded market, they, you know, m- make a name for themselves. But I think brand is about an awful lot more than the color. It's about the reputation. It's about the culture you espouse. It's whether you have values that you stand behind. It's about your customer service. So, uh, yes, brand is important. The colour of your brand perhaps less so.
2: What, uh,
1: what about mint though? Isn't there something to do with mint with 11FS and coral at Monzo and does oh, well, it, there's a colour at Starling as well? I think isn't Colourway becoming more and more of a...
0: Fun fact. Yeah, a brand Monzo holding. tried to trademark hot coral this week and got well, rejected. Oh, wow. Um, I think, uh, yeah, no, I think that, I think that the, the colour is important to attract the eye. But the th- if, we, if we're going to go into this if you're looking at retail banking you're actually holding something that is that colour you actually have something in your hand for the time being I know that may not be the case in the future your payment card is that colour and then it becomes a talking point because it's something that you use frequently so it becomes something that catches the eye it's something that's in your wallet it's something that you you know you show other people I'm not going to I mean, Lemonade doesn't have any physical policies. I don't even know how you'd know that I was a Lemonade customer unless they start sending you, like, badges, little... I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's probably do do that, little pin, you know, pin Lyft, badges. Lyft
1: uh, in uh, user colour. I think it's a magenta as well, isn't it, Lyft, in their logo. They used to send fairy mustaches to drivers <laughs> that they'd hang, like, you know, <laughs> dice. So maybe Lemonade needs to start doing that. <laughs>
0: Anyway, all right. I think, I think I'm think i going to wrap it up there unless anybody has any more burning <laughs> points on
1: that. Wait, wait, one last thing, though. Do we think are Lemonade fighting this? Are they going to yeah? take it to court? Oh, yeah. Do they pay costs in the EU, in Germany?
0: I don't know. Is it does, so that Lemonade has filed a motion with the EUIPO, so the European Intellectual Property Office, to invalidate DT's claim to a trademark on pink. So, yeah, they're fighting. They're fighting. Well, they're American, aren't they? I mean, they're kind of required to fight. Litigation is part of their blood. (laughs) All right. Oh, apparently I've just been given some some last minute information from uh, my producer. Lemonade has picked this up and turned it into an internet debate using the hashtag #FreeThePink. So if you want to get involved, um, please go ahead. That's how you can do it.
1: That's going to meme. Someone's going to take the Mickey out of that. There'll be pink panthers everywhere and all sorts of other things. I really am going to call time on this now.
0: (laughs) I think otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, thank you so much to my guests for joining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you? Do you have a hashtag or a Twitter account or a website, Sean?
2: I don't think I have a hashtag. Um, Twitter, I'm Sean Meadows1, and here I'm Sean.meadows at 11fs.com.
3: Brilliant. James, how
0: about you?
1: James, JW York on Twitter and LinkedIn.
3: And Sabine? Sabine van der Linden on LinkedIn and Sabine VDL on Twitter
0: perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to my guests, to Sean, to James and Sabine. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com.